Hollywood actors will join writers on the picket lines today as their union goes on strike over pay and the use of artificial intelligence. It's Friday, July 14th. This is Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up on WBUR's Morning Edition, a conversation with former Attorney General Bill Barr on the investigations into former President Trump. Also, people in Ludlow, Vermont, clean up from this week's floods with more rain on the way. People are, arms are out there. Arms are open wide holding everyone. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. That's what we do. Brave little state. And the backlash against Chinese online retailer Xi'an as customers question its treatment of workers. When Xi'an is so big, which means we have a bigger impact on its workers. This also means you have a bigger responsibility. Forecast rain today and through the weekend. It's 7.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Actors' Union, SAG-AFTRA, is now on strike against Hollywood studios for better wages. They're joining members of the Writers Guild who walked off their jobs in May. Hollywood may be the center of the job action, but the strike's effects are being felt elsewhere. From member station WABE in Atlanta, Marlon Hyde has more. Georgia's multi-billion dollar film and TV industry is bracing for a hit from the historic double strike. Georgia is home to actors, costume designers, hair and makeup crews, and hundreds of production hands. A double strike will likely shut down productions indefinitely across the entertainment industry, which could cause major financial losses. A number of high-profile TV and movie productions are filmed in Atlanta, including Netflix's Stranger Things and Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. This is the first time both unions are on strike together in over six decades. For NPR News, I'm Marlon Hyde in Atlanta. A note, NPR Newsroom staff are members of SAG-AFTRA but are not subject to the contracts in dispute. Excessive heat watches and warnings are up from Washington state to Alabama today. Temperatures from Oregon to Oklahoma will rise well above 100 degrees. Temperatures in notorious Death Valley, California, could leap to about 120 degrees today with little relief at night. Alessia Dempster is from Scotland and visiting Death Valley. It's very hot. I mean, especially when there's a breeze, you would think that maybe that would give you some slight relief from the heat, but it just really does feel like an an air blow dryer is just going back in your face. The National Weather Service says about 100 million people in the U.S. are under some kind of heat caution today. Forecasters say fresh flooding could strike Vermont this weekend. More than two inches of rain could fall. Some places could get more than that. The new rain comes after this week's catastrophic floods devastated parts of Vermont. Authorities now say a Vermont man drowned in his home this week. On Sunday, a New York woman drowned in flash flooding. More than 800,000 federal student loan borrowers are in for a pleasant surprise. The Education Department has announced they're about to have their federal student loans erased. NPR's Corey Turner explains. The forgiveness is unrelated to the recent Supreme Court ruling and is the result of a promise made last year by the Biden administration in response to years of complaints, lawsuits, and an NPR investigation. The problem was many borrowers had made student loan payments for 20 years or more and should have qualified to have their debts erased, but didn't. And that's because the department and its loan servicers had mismanaged what are called income-driven repayment plans. For the past year, the administration has been adjusting borrowers' accounts to make up for these mistakes. In the coming weeks, the department says it will erase $39 billion in student loans with more to come. Corey Turner, NPR News. You're listening to NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. A man charged with the shooting death of a 12-year-old boy in Mattapan is set to appear in court today. Boston police say the boy was shot inside a home near Walker Playground yesterday. The boy's name has not been released. Last night, officers arrested a 22-year-old man on charges of improper storage of a firearm and unlawful possession of a firearm and ammunition. Massachusetts women's advocates are praising federal approval of over-the-counter sales of the birth control pill, O-Pill. Kelly Blanchard is president of the Cambridge-based IBIS Reproductive Health, and she says the FDA's move will eliminate the expense and time of doctor visits and the drugs been used for decades. It was originally approved in 1973. It has a very long and well-established safety and effectiveness record. The maker of O-Pill says they'll start selling it over the counter next year. Farms across western Massachusetts are reporting near total loss of their crops after this week's floods. And as WBUR's John Bender reports, the problems could continue next year. Croplands could be unfit for planting if floodwaters have mixed with sewage, chemicals, or other pollutants. And farmers may be required to wait for any contaminants to dissipate before replanting. Department of Agricultural Resources Commissioner Ashley Randall says the state expects to issue guidance to farmers in the coming weeks. And depending on the crop, it will vary in terms of timelines for replanting and also where the sources were from the water coming into the various crops that were impacted. The state estimates at least 1,000 acres of farmlands were impacted during the flooding, costing upwards of $10 million in damage and crop loss. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm John Bender. Federal investigators are looking into whether a Kentucky man had a role in the alleged theft of human remains from a Harvard Medical School morgue. Court documents reveal that agents found 40 skulls and other human remains in the man's home in Kentucky. Investigators say Facebook messages tie him to a scheme where the uh, morgue's former manager is accused of selling stolen body parts. Those remains were donated to Harvard for teaching purposes and were supposed to be cremated. Today's the last day on the job for the head of the Massachusetts Gaming Commission. Karen Wells led the commission for three and a half years through the pandemic and the start of legal sports gambling. The commission's general counsel, Todd Grossman, will serve as interim executive director. It's seven minutes past seven. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. Details at CapitalOne.com. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required. Capital One Bank, USA, N.A. The Red Sox begin the second half of their season tonight when they visit the Chicago Cubs. Boston has a five-game winning streak. And the Stanley Cup will be in Tingsboro today. Hockey player Jack Eichel will bring it to a skating rink that he played at while growing up in nearby North Chelmsford. Eichel, who played college hockey at BU, won the Cup last month with the Vegas Golden Knights. In our forecast, looks like showers throughout the day today. We could see some heavy rain at times. Temperatures in the 80s. Rain tonight with lows around 70 degrees. Tomorrow, a mix of clouds and sun and showers throughout the day. And some heavy rain again. Thunderstorms on Sunday. Temperatures both weekend days in the 80s. It is 70 degrees in Boston. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, 
City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. It hit the mid-90s here in Washington yesterday, which seemed pretty warm to me until I heard about the weather in Phoenix, Arizona, which we will discuss in a moment. First, we hear an assessment of a different sort of heat, the legal heat that's on former President Trump. The assessment comes from William Barr, who served as attorney general in the Trump administration. Trump, as you know, took classified documents from the White House to Florida and did not return them. Last year, the FBI seized some of them, and last month, Special Counsel Jack Smith announced an indictment. We have one set of laws in this country, and they apply to everyone. Trump supporters have made the opposite claim, saying that conservatives face a double standard. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan made that claim just this week. We heard him on Morning Edition. He wove the Trump search and prosecution into his party's ongoing narrative against law enforcement. American speech is censored. Parents are called terrorists. Catholics are called radicals. And I haven't even talked about the spying that took place of a presidential campaign or the raiding of a former president's home. So that's Jordan's view, but President Trump's former chief of law enforcement sees the indictment differently. William Barr served as Trump's attorney general for just under two years. He later documented his disappointments with Trump in a book called One Damn Thing After Another. I think he got into trouble because he defied the subpoena and, according to the government, obstructed the subpoena. And the acts that they set forth are pretty egregious. And I think they will attempt to show that his state of mind was as they say in the law, contumacious. This was a willful violation that was effectively flipping the bird at the government. You have maybe a better idea of the former president's state of mind than a lot of people since you worked with him. Why would you imagine that he would want to defy the government and keep these documents? Well, my own opinion is that it was uh, a power play. Uh, it, it, it was essentially the government wanted him, and this is, his, this is an act of self-assertion. But once the government said, give them back, then he was going to show them that no one was going to push him around and that he, you know, was in effect still the president and could do what he wanted and get away with it. The way you're describing this case, Mr. Barr, is, of course, very different than it's being described in a lot of conservative media and in a lot of Republican circles. Even people who say they are no fans of Trump will allege this is a political prosecution. What are you saying when you get in conversations like that? Well, you know, what I say is uh, there have been cases in the past where I think his enemies and the left have gone after him obsessively and unfairly and, you know, told lies about him and that he was, in that sense, a victim. Uh, but in this case, in my opinion, he was not. This he provoked himself. He brought it entirely on himself and through a pattern of conduct that is also typical of Trump, which is going to excess and uh, doing reckless things with the idea that he can get away with it. And uh, the government got videos and other information indicating that he was cheating them. He was deceiving the government and still not giving everything back. So I don't think the government had much of a choice at that point but to execute a 
a search to retrieve the documents. And uh, everyone presented that as, as some outrage. Uh, and, you know, why, well, why didn't you ask him? Well, it turns out they had asked him for a year and a half. Oh, why didn't you get a subpoena? Well, it turns out they got a subpoena. And the fact is that anybody, a general or a former diplomat or anyone who did this would be prosecuted and go to prison. Okay, so this is a righteous case as far as the law is concerned. There's this next question is, as a matter of prudential judgment, is there reason not to do the prosecution? And I think the basic argument being made here is that Hillary Clinton was let off. Therefore, you should let off. There's a double standard, and therefore, you should let off Trump. And... You know, I, I don't think that that's a frivolous argument, but it's hard for me to fault the decision to go forward because, to me, the solution to a double standard is to apply the right standard in a case and try to apply it going forward even-handedly. You're saying that even if the decision not to prosecute Hillary Clinton was wrong, that the Justice Department should still do what is right, in your view, and prosecute here? Uh, yeah, I, I don't think the way to stop the double standard is to keep on perpetuating it by having equal injustice. The argument that Hillary should have been prosecuted, well, what was unjust is Hillary was not prosecuted. What is unjust is not prosecuting Trump at this stage. How do you control uh, and protect classified information going forward? You just prosecute the little guys, but you let the big guys get off if they flip the bird at the government? I mean, I'm not sure where that takes us. I'm thinking about the old saying, justice delayed is justice denied. If Trump's lawyers succeed in significantly delaying this case, even getting it delayed until sometime after the election, is that justice denied? Well, it depends who wins the election. I mean, if, if I think uh, if Trump wins the primaries and is the nominee, which I do not think he will be, but if he is and then if he gets elected, my assumption is the case would be dropped or he would have the case dropped. I mean, it will be a mess. It'll be a mess. If he can't get the Justice Department to drop the case in this hypothetical scenario, does he have the power to pardon himself? Well, that's not nothing I've studied. You know, I, I think he might have the power to pardon himself, but I don't want to lock myself into that position because I've never really studied it. This is one of the tragedies facing the country. Here, here we are. Here we are with with this panoply of problems, and we're going to have an election that centers on you know with the personal excesses of Donald Trump. He's been indicted twice. Do you think it's likely he'll be indicted again? There is this investigation in Fulton County, Georgia, into his interference in the 2020 election. There's the entire investigation into January 6th. Would you find it reasonable to see another indictment of Trump before long? Yeah, now I'm certainly not cheerleading for it uh, because they seem to help him. But uh, it seems to me that Georgia's is poised to do this. They've taken it pretty far, so I assume they're going to finish it. And uh, my own my own belief is that the Justice Department is going to indict uh, people on the January 6th matter, and my own bet would be that would include the president. But obviously I don't have any inside information on that. It's just my sense of things. Former Attorney General William Barr, thanks very much for the time. Yep, thank you, Steve. He spoke with us yesterday, and our conversation touched also on the Republican primary campaign. Barr is hoping that Republicans do not nominate Trump again, but if they do, he's not sure who he'd vote for. It would never be Joe Biden. 
but I'll jump off that bridge when I get to it. Barr says he'd pick a candidate who he thinks could win and who would do the least damage. Okay, now let's travel to a city that's even hotter than other parts of the United States. The city is Phoenix, and it makes me sweat just to say this. Temperatures in Phoenix reached at least 110 degrees every day for two weeks now. Catherine Davis-Young is with member station KJZZ in Phoenix. Uh, Catherine, I'm not kidding here. I called a friend in Phoenix at midnight to find out how hot it was, and he said 100, 100 at midnight. So does it feel as bad as that sounds? It is intense. Uh, You know, water comes out of my tap, scalding hot. If I'm inside and I put my hand to an exterior wall in my house, it's warm. And it really does never let up. I let my dog outside usually around 6 a.m. And even early in the morning, I get a blast of hot air as soon as I open the door. So that's part of why this heat spell is so brutal. High temperatures of 115 or 118 make the headlines. But those overnight low temperatures haven't dipped below 85 now for about two weeks. Actually, on Wednesday night, the low temperature was 95, and that has only ever happened six times since record-keeping began. Well, what makes Phoenix then even worse than some other places that are getting hotter? So those overnight lows are part of the way that climate change is even more extreme here. The group Climate Central says summer nighttime temperatures nationwide have risen about two and a half degrees since 1970. So that's true everywhere. But our summer nights have heated up nearly six degrees in that same time period. That's partly because we've just changed the natural landscape so drastically. David Hondula is director of Phoenix's Office of Heat Response and Mitigation. He tells me this is what's known as the urban heat island effect. The dark, hard surfaces in the city tends to be really good at absorbing and retaining heat and slowly re-releasing it at night compared to the much brighter surrounding sandy desert environment. Basically, since cities tend to be paved over, they just can't cool off at night. And cities bring with them lots of machinery and cars and other things that keep temperatures high. So Phoenix has been one of the fastest growing metro areas in the country for several years. And that explosive growth has contributed to this heat island phenomenon. And this kind of heat is dangerous, too. Yes, the number of heat-related deaths in the metro area has been skyrocketing for the past decade, so finding ways to make this city more adaptable to heat is a huge priority. Yeah, but Phoenix has never been a cool place. It's always been hot in Phoenix, so what's it doing to get a little relief? So I mentioned Hondula's Office of Heat Response and Mitigation. That office is not even two years old. It's one of the first of its kind in the country. They're working on solutions like a special coating for pavement that prevents some of that heat absorption that causes the heat island effect. But they're also investing in more low-tech solutions, like just planting a lot more trees across the city to create shade. But Hondula tells me urban heat island really needs to be part of the conversation as our population and our city boundaries continue to grow. That's KJZZ's Catherine Davis-Young. Thanks a lot, uh, Catherine. Stay cool if you can. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, the FDA's approval of the first over-the-counter birth control pill and how that might affect young people. It's 720.
I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Now on view, ICABoston.org. 10-step skincare routines, products made from snail mucus, just some of the things popularized worldwide by the South Korean beauty industry. And then I use this other essence. How many steps do I have? Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The K-beauty industry, consumerism and the pursuit of flawlessness. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In our forecast, showers today, temperatures in the 80s, more rain tonight with lows around 70 degrees. Tomorrow should be partly sunny with scattered showers throughout the day, highs in the 80s, and rain and thunderstorms on Sunday, temperatures in the 80s. It's 70 degrees right now in Boston. And because of the wet weekend weather, it might be a good time to catch a movie. On the latest episode of our podcast, The Common, we take a look inside three independent theaters and get a preview of two upcoming film festivals. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. From Mattress Firm, whether customers browse online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. From Charles Schwab, dedicated to serving clients with 24-7 live support, the people at Schwab are committed to helping clients on their investing journey. Learn more at schwab.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Back in the 1990s, the writer Octavia Butler offered a vision of the future. She wrote a science fiction novel called Parable of the Sower. The novel depicted a nightmarish future set in the year 2024. 2024, which is now a few months away. Parable of the Sower has become a musical, and NPR's Anastasia Siolkis had a look. On a warm recent evening in Manhattan, I'm sitting at rehearsal amidst 170 community singers who are part of the Parable performance at New York's Lincoln Center alongside professional musicians. They're learning a chorus that includes the opening words of Octavia Butler's novel. Parable of the Sower is set in 2024. There's climate crisis driving people out of their homes. Gun violence and drug use are rampant. In the sequel, an authoritarian politician promises to, and this is a direct quote, make America great again. Against all this chaos, the main character, Lauren Oya Olamina, hungers to shape a very different reality. The words the chorus sings are the building blocks of a new religion that Olamina has envisioned called Earthseed. God has changed, God has changed, as 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 
The opera version of Parable of the Sower was created by singer-songwriter Toshi Regan and her mother, activist and singer Bernice Johnson Regan, who founded the ensemble Sweet Honey in the Rock and is now retired. Toshi Regan says she and her mother share a deep love of Octavia Butler's writing. Their first joint opportunity to explore Butler's work through music came in the 1990s. Toni Morrison asked my mother to come to Princeton to do the Princeton Atelier as an opportunity for an artist to teach at Princeton for a semester. And my mom was really busy at the time and she was like, but maybe Toshi will do half the classes. I was like, you know, young in my career, and I was like, woohoo, I'm gonna go teach at Princeton for Toni Morrison, yay! <laughs> so cool. Eventually, they began writing their own musical interpretation of Parable of the Sower. Luckily, the Regans got free reign from Butler herself, who died in 2006. As in Butler's work, the Regans' music references centuries of African-American history and culture, moving back and forth between the past, present, and future with ease. A sower went out, a sower went out, a sower went out, a sower went out, a sower as Octavia Butler told WHYY's Fresh Air in 1993, her parable novels were very much about the use and abuse of power in a broken society. They have no power to improve their lives, but they have the power to make others even more miserable. And the only way to prove to yourself that you have power is to use it. Because it lacked water, it withered away. There's a lot of sheer brutality in Butler's narrative, but fans also find a lot of comfort and solidarity in Butler's vision of resistance. They include four-time Hugo Award winner N.K. Jemison, who began reading Butler as a young woman and wrote the introduction to the most recent edition of Parable of the Sower. Jemison sees many parallels between Butler's imagining of 2024 and today's social and political climate. In those books, Butler goes through the whole issue of trying to live within a society that is disrespectful of your needs, even your bodily autonomy. I'm needing that hope. I'm needing that encouragement, that reminder that these things go in cycles and that the cycle will at some point end and we will push back. There are readers who have taken Butler's work and the character Lauren Olamina's concept of Earthseed as spiritual texts. Toshi Regan sees Butler's writing as inspirational guides to thought and action. Parable is the wake-up call. Hey, y'all, stop messing around. This is what's going to happen in 30 years if you don't really do something about yourselves. Regan says she finds guidance in how to navigate life communally in the Earthseed groups that the main character creates. Regan says we see this kind of instant community all the time in real life, in bad times and in good. When there's disasters, people get together and start to create together and figure out how to survive. I love videos from festivals where like nobody's dancing and then one person gets up and starts dancing and then somebody else. The next, you know, it's like 500 people dancing. There is immense possibilities for joy in communities. And personally, I think the more joy, 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 the better for us. 
Which brings us back to the importance of singing in community. There's a new world coming. Everything gonna be turning over. Everything gonna be turning over. Where you gonna be standing when it comes? That's why the Regans decided to retell the parable of the sower in music. Singing the story evokes all of us in the space to be in a vibrational relationship so that we can really feel like we're not alone. We are not by ourselves. We are breathing, we are alive, we are together. We have opportunity to shift and change in the ways that we can in our lives. And so, Toshi Regan says, her work is an invitation, just as Octavia Butler's writing is, to imagine and create a different world. Anastasia Tsoukas, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are coming up in just a couple of minutes. And in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we check in the small town of Ludlow, Vermont, which is coming together to start to clean up from this week's flash floods. You can tap to follow the news every day on the WBUR app. One tap to listen live anywhere. Another tap to pause and rewind. Get the WBUR app in your app store today. It's 730. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Treasury Department says the U.S. budget deficit nearly tripled in the first nine months of the current fiscal year. It rose to almost $1.4 trillion from last October to June. Here's NPR's Scott Horsley. This deficit adds to an already large government debt of around $32 trillion. Interest on that debt in the last nine months was $652 billion. That's more than we spent on the military during that period. Spending by the federal government is up sharply, while tax revenues are down amid rising interest rates and high inflation. Extreme heat is expanding over more areas of the U.S., The National Weather Service says nearly 100 million people are now affected by heat warnings or advisories stretching from Washington state to Alabama as well as South Florida. Afternoon highs in Phoenix have been around 110 degrees for two consecutive weeks. Union actors are on strike against the major Hollywood film and TV studios. Members of SAG-AFTRA walked off the job this morning over pay structures amid the growing influence of streaming services and concerns about artificial intelligence. Actors are joining members of the Writers Guild of America who have been on strike since early May. It's the first time both groups have been on strike since 1960. This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Legislation making its way through Beacon Hill proposes a sweeping ban on the sale of location data from cell phones. As WBUR's Laney Ruxdale reports, the proposed ban would be the strictest in the nation. 
Under the proposal, applications on your phone would only be allowed to access your location for specific purposes, like food delivery. Law enforcement would be prohibited from accessing such data without a warrant. BU law professor Andrew Sellers says the ban would be a win for digital privacy. There's been a growing number of advocates saying that the utility of this data to the consumer is very, very minimal. It feels very exploitative. It has these uh, real concerns and dangers when it comes to vulnerable populations, including those seeking abortion care after the Dobbs decision. The legislation is an effort to protect patients from other states seeking abortions in Massachusetts. But Sellers says it also has broader implications. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lainey Ruxtell. Also on Beacon Hill, House lawmakers want to encourage housing construction by expanding a tax credit program. They approved the measure yesterday as part of this year's spending bill. The proposal would triple the annual cap for a state program that helps gateway cities develop market rate housing. The Healy administration and the Senate have proposed similar measures as part of their tax relief bills, and those remain tied up in negotiations. Boston City Councilor Kendra Lara regularly drove to work at City Hall despite having a revoked driver's license. A city spokesperson tells the Boston Globe that she also parked in the City Hall executive garage. Police say Lara crashed her car into a home in Jamaica Plain last month while she was going twice the speed limit. Her seven-year-old son was hurt in that crash. Investigators say her car was also unregistered and uninsured. Lara has not commented on the accusations but has apologized to her constituents. It's 7.33. WBUR supporters include schooner Grace Bailey. You can sail the coast of Maine with Brooklyn Nine-Nine and The Good Place actor Mark Evan Jackson. Learn more at SailGraceBailey.com. The Red Sox will look to extend their five-game winning streak tonight. They visit the Cubs in Chicago, and looks like more rain in our forecast. Showers today, temperatures around 80 degrees. Rain tonight with lows near 70. Scattered showers tomorrow, highs in the mid-80s, and looks like showers and thunderstorms on Sunday with temperatures in the low 80s. It's 70 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. For the first time, a birth control pill will be available in the United States without a prescription from a doctor. The Food and Drug Administration approved the medication known as Opil for over-the-counter sales. The company that makes it says the drug will be on the shelves early next year, although they have not said how much it will cost. Angela Maskey of the organization Advocates for Youth testified before the FDA in May asking them to approve the drug. She spoke recently with Michelle Martin, who began by asking what motivated Maskey to campaign for the new pill. 
The first time I tried to access birth control pills, I was a freshman in college, but I, I was told that since my university was Catholic, I could not be prescribed birth control pills at our student health center. So I actually had to seek care elsewhere at a different provider. And it took me three months to navigate finding a new doctor in this new city and getting an appointment before I could finally pick up the birth control pills that I needed. And then I understand that after a certain point, you were even getting telehealth, which is something that has become increasingly popular. But then even that arrangement fell apart. Is that accurate? And how did what happened then? Yes. I mean, this actually happened just this year where I had been using a telehealth service to ship my birth control pills to me. And um, one day they suddenly announced that they would no longer be serving patients here in D.C., and so at that time, I had to scramble with just a week left of my supply to, you know, find a new provider and get a new prescription. And so, you know, in both of these times in my life, if I had had access to an over-the-counter birth control pill, I would have been spared so much stress and time just knowing that I had an option I could easily pick up on the shelves of my local drugstore. What do you think is the importance of this decision in making this particular form of birth control available over-the-counter? Once O-Pill is available um, on the shelves of drugstores, it will be the most effective form of over-the-counter birth control available to folks. And, and that is really, really huge. And we know that the prescription requirement right now for birth control pills poses many barriers for people in general who need them, but particularly for young people who often don't have access to reliable transportation to go to a doctor's appointment, who are uninsured, or maybe they're on their parents' insurance, and who face stigma and judgment from family members and healthcare providers. You testified before the FDA about this, and you asked them to make this available without age restriction. So it is being made available for all users of reproductive age. That could be as young as 11. Are you at all concerned about that, that maybe a 12 or 13-year-old would not understand that, for example, taking birth control pills can protect you from pregnancy, but it can't protect you from sexually transmitted disease? You know, that's not a concern for me personally. And based on the literature and the research that's out there, you know, OPIL studies that the FDA required actually showed that young people, you know, within that age range that you mentioned could read the labels and understand them effectively. And I think it's really important to note that young people of any age are able to get a number of other medications that are available over the counter already. And that, of course, includes Plan B, emergency contraception, that you can get at your local drugstore. Is there something about the particular era that we are now in where a number of states are moving very aggressively to curtail access to abortion, for example. Do you think that making this medication available over the counter is particularly important at this time? It is very important, especially in light of a number of restrictions on abortion across the country um, that we're seeing. But I will also say that this has been in the works for many years. You know, it has been decades of work that advocates have been putting towards making a birth control pill available over the counter. That's Angela Maskey of Advocates for Youth. Thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you. In the past few years, Shein has grown into the world's largest online-only fashion retailer, known for trendy clothes on the cheap. In the process, the Chinese-owned company has also drawn criticism from some U.S. lawmakers. From our daily economic show, The Indicator, Adrian Ma and Darian Woods explain how Shein's unusual business model helped it grow into a fast fashion behemoth. To better understand how Shein has been able to grow so fast and sell clothes so cheaply, we reached out to Sheng Lu. He teaches the business of fashion and apparel at the University of Delaware. 
So sometimes I'm joking. I'm the least fashionable fashion professor in, you no, know, maybe in the U.S. or maybe in the world. And he pointed us to four main things about Shein's business model. First, the way the company uses technology. All fast fashion brands use tech to identify trends and find customers, but Shein just takes it to another level. Chung says they even hire data scientists to help design clothing. So data scientists is like the, the new fashion designers. Yeah, what can't they do? <laughs> anyway, Shein's second competitive edge has to do with its approach to launching new products. So retailers like H&M and Zara are constantly worried about replenishing old products when they sell out. Here are some numbers that really put it into perspective. Shang says that during a recent 12-month period, H&M offered around 25,000 different products for sale. Zara offered around 35,000. So this sounds like a lot, right? Yeah. But over the same period, Shein offered around 1.3 million different products. That's 40 to 50 times as many products. So many products. The third ingredient in Shein's special sauce is that it's very different to its competitors and its supply chain. While other brands work with manufacturers all over the world, pretty much all of Shein's contracted factories are in China. According to the company, it has about 6,000 of them. And fourth, maybe the most interesting of Shein's competitive advantages has to do with U.S. trade law. So for conventional retailers and brands, when they import the products at the beginning, it has to go, you know, through big container. You have to go through the normal customs procedure. Meaning when other retailers have big containers full of thousands of pairs of pants coming into a U.S. port, those pants have to go through inspections. They have to pay tariffs on them, things like that. But Shein does not have to do that because the law makes an exception for de minimis or low-value goods, as they're called, basically anything under $800. And because Shein is usually shipping relatively small orders direct from factories to U.S. customers, it gets to avoid a lot of that custom stuff. But all the spectacular growth has brought scrutiny of Shein. Like other fast fashion brands, they've been under fire for their labor practices. The company says they have a zero-tolerance policy against the use of forced labor. Our industry is not just about a commodity, it's about the people. When Shein is so big, which means it will have a bigger impact on its workers. This also means you have a bigger responsibility. Now, there have been reports that Shein is looking to go public in the U.S. eventually. And if that happens, Sheng hopes that could compel the company to be more transparent about how they make their clothes. Adrian Ma, Darian Woods, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. This is NPR News. And you're listening to WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on Morning Edition, the simultaneous strikes in Hollywood with movie and TV actors joining writers on the picket lines. Our weather forecast, partly sunny now. Showers throughout the day, though. Highs in the 80s today. Rain tonight with lows near 70 degrees. In business news, Boston's planning and development agency has signed off on a major redevelopment project for the area around Fenway Park. 
The $1.6 billion project is called Fenway Corners. Eventually, it would include eight buildings around the ballpark with offices, lab space, apartments, and stores. There will also be a makeover of the area between Fenway and the Lansdowne commuter rail station. A historic diner in New Bedford is going up for auction this month. The Shawmut Diner closed in 2014 and was donated to the Bristol County Sheriff's Office. It was meant to be used as vocational training for prisoners, but the Sheriff's Office says the funding for that never came through. It's 7.44. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. bostonchildrens.org slash answers. And Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. More rain is expected to hit Vermont this weekend, and it'll come as communities are trying to clean up from this week's historic flooding. Nina Keck has this report from Ludlow, Vermont, one of the hardest-hit areas of the state. Dump trucks and heavy equipment beep and bulldoze on either side of Ludlow, clearing the roads and stirring up a hazy layer of dust. The wet sludge that covered much of the downtown has begun to dry, but the flood's footprint is everywhere. Orion Jones stands near the back door of the Maine and Mountain Motel, his boots, shorts, and T-shirts spattered with mud. Well, yesterday we were just focused on pretty much getting all the water out of the basement and scooping out all the, the sediment that's been sitting there, and we've been, we're kind of still doing that now. We've moved out a bunch of washer, dryers, a bunch of appliances. A lot of lifting. <laughs> Jones is from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and happened to be staying with friends in Cavendish. He couldn't leave because of the flooding. So he and his friends headed to Ludlow to help with cleanup. I think you might get a little wet. It's yeah. still, there's still some water down there, but yeah. He shows me where they've been working. Um, oh, wow, you get that flooded basement smell right away. Oh, my God, yeah, no, absolutely. And this, this pump right here, it's been going for the last 24 hours. Across the street at the Homestyle Hostel, Abby Childs, her husband Danny, and several friends are shoveling silt out of a back room. Be careful, it's really slippery. So this was a bunk room at one point. You can see the water line here. That's the water line? Yes. And it's even higher in this room. That's like almost up to your armpit. Yes. How many buckets would you say you guys have emptied? Fifty? Fifty. Probably, yeah. From just this room. We head outside and step around mud piles and discarded furniture. The building is just feet from the Black River, which today is a muddy brown. Abby Childs moved to Ludlow in 2017. Her home wasn't impacted by the flooding, she tells me, but she says good friends have been. I couldn't imagine spending a day any different. I own a small business and I'm a graphic designer. I work for myself. I sat down yesterday trying to, you know, trying to work and I just said, not a chance. I, I have to come over here and help, help out because the destruction is unfathomable. <laughs> Well, like I said, if you need anything, let me know. All right. I'll help as much as I can. All right. Later. Thank you. 
down the street, Craig Goodman stands in the parking lot of his pizzeria, chatting with a neighbor in a pickup truck. Goodman feels lucky. He says the flooding missed his home and restaurant this time. When Irene hit, our restaurant was a different location. We lost the whole place. And so the struggle for us, it was, it was tough. It was tough. Because he was able to open, Goodman wanted to give back with free pizza for anyone helping with the cleanup. By noon, he was serving a steady stream of tired and muddy patrons. Oh, thank you for coming down. Oh, my God. Well, we could have been here sooner, but on Pleasant Street now, there's a fire. Over the course of the day, Goodman's Pizzeria became an oasis where people could share stories, compare damage, and reassure each other that things will get better. Thank you guys for coming down. Susan Mordecai and Mitch Ray live in Plymouth and took a lunch break together. So no, people are, arms are out there. Arms are open wide holding everyone. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. That's what we do. Brave little state. We're accustomed to not having access to a lot of the luxuries of, of big cities and bigger towns, so we just really like to fall on, on neighborly, neighborly love. It, yeah. it's a, this sounds odd, but a, a few weeks ago, I, I, like many other people, were a little bit heartbroken, thinking, what are we doing? Where are we going as a, as a world, as a community? Are we taking care of one another? It seemed like at a time what we weren't, but when this came around, I'm like, no, we are taking care of one another. So there's always a silver lining. Inside his pizzeria, Greg Goodman had set up a way for patrons to donate to a community Venmo account. He says in just 12 hours, they'd raised more than $10,000. I'm Nina Keck in Ludlow. Hi, how's it going? Coming up at 8.15 on WBUR's Morning Edition, the World Health Organization has designated aspartame a possible carcinogen, but the FDA disagrees. It's 7.49. Earlier this year, severe floods hit California's Central Valley, devastating farms and homes. Some of those most affected were immigrant farm workers. We need to have a different approach to economic and climate resilience if we're going to protect the rights and the well-being of those that are furthest on the margins. That story on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their efforts to protect and preserve the natural world for future generations. Here's a look at some of the stories WBUR is following this Friday morning. More than 100 million Americans are under heat alerts as soaring temperatures in the south and southwest could break all-time records. Hollywood actors are joining writers on the picket line today in the first dual strike for the industry in six decades. And officials in Vermont say this week's flooding has killed at least one person and more rain is on the way. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, with a variety of British mysteries available for streaming, including all seasons of Luther, Father Brown, and Silent Witness. Available during Mystery Month at BritBox.com NPR.
From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. Scattered showers expected later today. Highs will be in the 80s. Rain tonight with lows near 70 degrees in rain this weekend. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steven Skeep. And I'm A. Martinez. In Pakistan, the monsoon season is on as heavy rains have already killed dozens of people. I spoke to Cambridge University lecturer Aisha Siddiqui, who studies floods and other disasters in post-colonial states. She says millions of people are still reeling from the effects of last year's monsoon season. Now they're going to face this intense extreme weather event, which is going to have catastrophic impacts for a very large population. Pakistan is responsible for less than 1% of global greenhouse gas emissions, but it's among the countries most vulnerable to climate change. I asked Siddiqui how much blame climate change gets for weather-related disasters in Pakistan. There is absolutely no way to take away culpability from industrialized countries in the global north. At the same time, there are obviously factors within uh, Pakistan, structural factors that make these weather events like the extreme rainfall a lot worse for people. There are particular ways in which the river has been managed. Um, there are factors around colonialism. There is mismanagement within particular institutions in the country. So there are a confluence of factors. So uh, is, how much of this stems from Pakistan's time as as a colony. Uh, I know they've been independent uh, since 1947, but is colonial time still relevant when we talk about climate change in Pakistan? Yes, absolutely. So there was a real push for a particular kind of system around allocating land to people who the British state uh, needed to patronize. And there was also a real need to demonstrate that actually the imperial state was able to control things like the, the flow of rivers and, and water. So e extensive dams, barrages, um, irrigation networks, Various infrastructural developments took place on the uh, Indus River. And by the time um, the British left colonial South Asia, Pakistan was and still has the largest contiguous network of canal systems anywhere in the world. And we know that this over-engineering, this over kind of control of water uh, repeatedly results in problems. You mentioned uh, the words mismanagement and management. Um, and I want to touch on that a little bit, because I remember last year, the international community pledged billions of dollars to Pakistan um, since the floods. Has that money been received? What, what do you know about how that money has been used? So um, my understanding is that that not much of it came to Pakistan. A lot of um, these kind of bilateral uh, pledges that come from single countries, etc., what they often do is they just divert the aid. Another thing that uh, we've been talking about, the uh, question of World Bank loans and uh, repayments that Pakistan had to make to, to service its debt and any kind of serious commitment towards helping some of the most vulnerable people against climate change needs to include the conversation around debt relief. 
Aisha Sadiqi is a human geography expert who studies disasters and risk in the global south. Aisha, thank you very much. You're very welcome. The most prestigious tennis tournament in the world comes to a close this weekend in London. Serbian superstar Novak Djokovic is playing in the Wimbledon men's semifinals this morning. He's looking to add to his record 23 Grand Slam wins. And on the women's side, a Muslim player has a chance at making history. Here to tell us about more about what we can expect to see this weekend is John Wertheim. He's covering Wimbledon for Sports Illustrated and the Tennis Channel. So, John, three of the top men's players are in the semifinals today. Who's had the hardest run so far? Who's had the hardest run? Um, you know, at some level, Novak Djokovic, just because he is playing with this immense pressure that every time he plays, it's like the Super Bowl for the player on the other side of the net. But um, I think in, in terms of set scores and match scores, probably Daniil Medvedev, the Russian, who was very close to losing to this this American player, uh, sort of in the story of the tournament, uh, Chris Eubanks, two days ago, and Medvedev was, was able to prevail, prevail, but it was very close. All right, so Djokovic's opponent is an eight seed, Yannick Sinner. Um, <laughs> I mean, Djokovic is a living legend still on top of his game. I know you said the pressure's on him in a way, but what are Sinner's chances against him? Um, yeah, we were trying. We're, grass versus lawnmower. Uh, I mean, Djokovic oh, has just geez. been at this completely yeah. different plane. I was just looking up the stats. This is his 71st major he's entered in his career. He's trying to make his 35th final. Um, he's the overwhelming favorite. He, doesn't, he hasn't lost on center court in more than a decade. He doesn't lose to top 10 players. I mean, sh- short of, I mean, you know, this is, this is sports, and these are not uh, pre-scripted results okay. like pro wrestling, but short of that, it's very hard to see him uh, not prevailing. All right, in the women's final, Tunisian star owns Jabour takes on the Czech Republic's uh, Marketa Bondrusova. Uh, Jabour's been in the finals before. She's never won. What are her chances this time around? This time, I think high for, for exactly the reason you said uh, she was a finalist here last year. And by her own admission, I mean, she's she's a wonderful player. And she's also just this, this wonderfully candid, self-possessed presence here. And she's been very upfront about it, that she, she sort of didn't show up and the nerves got to her. And she knows the history at stake. The first woman from the Arab world possibly to win uh, to win a major, the first woman from North Africa. This is her third major final, and I suspect this time she will be much more poised. I, I think, think she wins it, and I think it's a really big story for tennis. So given her achievements, then, is the tennis world expecting more Arab and Muslim players entering the sport? It, it's interesting you say that because the, the chatter behind closed doors is not about matches. It's about Saudi Arabia's what, what looks to be inevitable foray into tennis, uh, much as the case with, with professional golf. Um, nobody quite knows the form it's going to take, but... Saudi Arabia has expressed interest in involving itself in tennis. Uh, with that comes money, and with money, uh, ideally come players. So yes, one suspects that uh, Ans Jabour will have company fairly soon in terms of uh, Arab country representation in, in tennis. What is the talk centered on? What's it focused on? I think it's the form this is going to take. I mean, everybody is, you know, the, the, the catnip of, uh, of big oil money is, is sort of wafting around and everybody's interested in uh, this infusion of capital. The question is, is this going to be sponsorship essentially, or is this going to be something like golf where there's this rival tour attempt that really sets the sport into turmoil? And, and tennis is sort of balkanized enough as it is and throw in the, the lure of money. And um, I think everybody is sort of... eager but nervous what form this is all going to take. John Wertheim is with Sports Illustrated and the Tennis Channel. John, thanks a lot. Anytime.
This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, modern Latin American fare for those seeking flavorful, healthy choices. Catering your office lunch in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. Senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Striking screen actors will begin picketing with writers in New York and L.A. in what's become the biggest Hollywood labor fight in decades. It's Friday, July 14th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, Hollywood actors went on strike after failing to reach a contract deal with the studios. It came with great sadness that we came to this crossroads, but we had no choice. Also this hour, the World Health Organization designates aspartame as a possible carcinogen, but the FDA disagrees. Plus, the evangelical voting bloc in Iowa. This year, I think you have several candidates who are strong in conviction and who have the resources to go the distance. Plus, Massachusetts could become the first state to ban the sale of cell phone location data. Forecast says rain later today and through the weekend. It's 8.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The National Weather Service says excessive heat watches and warnings stretch from the West Coast to Florida. About 100 million people from Oregon to Oklahoma and farther east will feel temperatures in excess of 100 degrees today. For member station KJZZ, Catherine Davis-Young says Phoenix cannot even cool off overnight. High temperatures of 115 or 118 make the headlines, but those overnight low temperatures haven't dipped below 85 now for about two weeks. Actually, on Wednesday night, the low temperature was 95, and that has only ever happened six times since record-keeping began. Catherine Davis-Young reporting. Forecasters say Vermont could get fresh rain this weekend. That could trigger fresh flooding in the state. Residents are still grappling with catastrophic flooding earlier this week. Vermont Public's Michaela Lafrac reports state leaders want more support from the federal government. Many streets, homes, and businesses in Barrie, Vermont, are covered in inches of mud. FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell recently toured the area alongside Governor Phil Scott and the state's congressional delegation. Scott is making the case for a major disaster declaration. That would unlock additional recovery funding for Vermont. He also warns that more rain is expected heading into the weekend. For the time being, we still need to focus on the response and prepare for whatever comes our way over the next couple of days. Authorities report there's been one fatality as a result of the flooding. For NPR News, I'm Michaela Lafrac in Burlington. Special Counsel Jack Smith says there is no basis to delay former President Donald Trump's federal trial in Florida. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports Trump is facing dozens of charges for storing government secrets at his Florida resort. Trump has pleaded not guilty to charges of obstruction and willful retention of defense information, and government lawyers want to go to trial soon, this December. 
Special counsel Jack Smith says some of Trump's arguments for delaying the case until after the 2024 election border on frivolous. And he says the former president should not be treated different than other defendants who have busy jobs and travels. Lawyers for Trump, his valet, and the special counsel are due in federal court in Florida next week for a hearing. Judge Aileen Cannon, who was appointed by Trump, is overseeing the case. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. More than 800,000 federal student loan borrowers are about to have some parts of their federal student loan debt erased. That's because the federal government failed to keep the terms of a program that pledged to cancel the debts of lower-income people who qualified to have these forgiven. This comes after years of complaints about the program, lawsuits, and an NPR investigation. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. The union representing actors and performers has called a strike against Hollywood studios. More than 100,000 SAG-AFTRA members are demanding increases in base pay. They also want assurances that their work won't be replaced by artificial intelligence. A note, NPR newsroom staff are members of SAG-AFTRA but are not subject to the contract in dispute. The lead prosecutor of the International Criminal Court says he is investigating new allegations of war crimes in western Sudan. He was already investigating allegations of genocide in Darfur dating back to a decade ago. NPR's Michelle Kellerman has more. The fighting between Sudanese government forces and a rival paramilitary force has now spilled over into Darfur, and the International Criminal Court prosecutor, Karim Khan, has a warning for the UN Security Council. And the simple truth is that we are in peril of allowing history to repeat itself. The same miserable history that compelled this council in 2005 to refer this Darfur situation to the ICC. The U.S. ambassador says there are credible reports that paramilitary forces whom the U.S. accused of genocide in the past are once again responsible for mass violence. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. Iowa Republican Governor Kim Reynolds is preparing to sign a ban on most abortions in her state. The new law would take effect immediately. An Iowa state judge is also poised to review whether it should be put on hold for a legal challenge. This is NPR. This is WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Boston leaders are encouraging people to turn over illegal guns after the shooting death of a 12-year-old boy in Mattapan. Police say the boy was in a home near Walker Playground when he was killed yesterday. His name has not been released. Officers arrested a 22-year-old man in the shooting last night. He's charged with improper storage of a firearm and unlawful possession of a firearm and ammunition. He's set to appear in court in Boston later today. Driver's licenses from Massachusetts will remain valid in Florida. Law enforcement officials in Florida had said they would not recognize licenses from states that issue driving permits to undocumented immigrants. And this month, Massachusetts began issuing licenses to people regardless of their immigration status. Because the registry uses the same standard to issue licenses to everyone in Massachusetts, Florida decided to recognize all of the state's licenses. In Massachusetts, you might think that the glass you add to a recycling bin along with paper and plastic becomes new glass. But a report out this week says you're wrong. WBUR's Martha Biebinger explains. 
The Northeast Recycling Council report says Massachusetts and most states in the region use glass processed at recycling plants as fill in road construction or to cover landfills. The council's Marianne Ramolador says that's unfortunate. Landfill cover is the lowest value and use of recycled glass, and it has the least environmental benefits. A plant that used to take the dirty glass and clean it for reuse closed in 2018. Glass residents separate themselves, or bottles returned for deposit are typically melted for new glass or fiberglass. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. It's going to be a rough time for some Green Line riders. Tomorrow and Sunday, the T is suspending all underground service between North Station and Kenmore Square for tunnel inspections. Then on Monday, the entire B branch of the line will shut down and stay closed for two weeks. Buses will replace trains between Boston College and Kenmore Square through July 28th. That will allow crews to rebuild a half a mile of tracks in Alston, which was the site of a minor derailment last Last month. It's eight minutes past eight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. The Red Sox and Cubs play in Chicago tonight to start the second half of the season. And partly sunny skies right now, but rain in our forecast for later today. Highs in the 80s. Tonight, rain continues. Lows around 70 degrees. Tomorrow, scattered showers throughout the day. Temperatures in the 80s and looks like showers and thunderstorms are likely on Sunday. Highs will be in the 80s. It is 71 degrees in Boston. Want some new summer reads on us? Sign up for WBUR's Beach Books newsletter in the month of July, and you could win a $30 gift card to Beacon Hill Books. We're picking from our subscribers each week, so sign up for Beach Books at WBUR.org slash Beach Books. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The World Health Organization and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration have different views on the safety of aspartame. That's the artificial sweetener you can find in all sorts of things, like diet soda or gum. Find out what the difference is in just a few minutes. First, though, it's a lucky break for pop culture that Oppenheimer the movie is in the can. That's because actors are now on strike. Their union, SAG-AFTRA, called for the work stoppage against the big studios. NPR's Manalita El Barco is in Los Angeles. This hasn't happened in decades, so what does it look like? Some of the actors from SAG-AFTRA have already been picketing outside the studios in solidarity with striking screenwriters. But starting this morning, there will be so many more. The union has more than 100,000 actor members. This is the first time since 1960 that there's a double strike in Hollywood with the actors and writers. Back then, the strikes resulted in union members getting health care and pensions, and it set up a residual system to compensate writers and actors when movies were aired on TV. Now it's a whole new Hollywood ecosystem, especially with the streaming platforms, and actors don't feel they're getting their share of the pie. That's what the president of SAG-AFTRA, Fran Drescher, said when announcing the strike. The jig is up. You cannot keep being dwindled and marginalized and disrespected and dishonored. The entire business model has been changed by streaming, digital, AI. She spoke about actors not wanting to be replaced by machines and wanting to share the profits of the Hollywood companies. What are studios saying? 
Well, the, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which represents the studios, said they offered a salary increases and a, quote, groundbreaking proposal on AI. In a statement, the Studio Alliance said that SAG-AFTRA has chosen a path that will lead to financial hardship for everyone who depends on the industry. And, you know, in this hard economic climate, studios and the streamers have already been laying off workers just before the strike was called, Disney's CEO Bob Iger said the writers and actors' demands were not realistic. SAG after obviously disagrees. Yeah, and you were at the press conference where Drescher gave that fiery speech. What else did you have to say? Well, certainly Fran Drescher delivered quite a performance beyond anything she did on her TV show, The Nanny, though once on the show, her character did refuse to cross a picket line. She got cheers for speaking out about how the contract negotiations went down. She blasted studio executives for being insulting and greedy. I am shocked by the way the people that we have been in business with are treating us. I cannot believe it, quite frankly how far apart we are on so many things, how they plead poverty, that they're losing money left and right when giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. It is disgusting. Shame on them. I do need to make clear that many of us at NPR are members of SAG-AFTRA, but broadcast journalists are under a very different contract, and we're not on strike. Now, when the writers went on strike, you could say Hollywood at least slowed down. Now it's the actors. I mean, we're at a standstill in Hollywood. So how big of a deal is this, this double strike? Now, according to SAG-AFTRA's rules, striking performers are not allowed to act, sing, dance, or do stunts. They can't promote their projects. So no red carpets, no premieres, no press junkets, no award shows, no new movies or TV shows. So now the entire Hollywood machine is on pause. NPR's Manalit Del Barco, thanks for the info. Thanks. Some other news now. The World Health Organization has classified aspartame as a possible, possible carcinogen. Aspartame is an artificial sweetener which is used in everything from diet soda to yogurt to chewing gum. But U.S. authorities at the Food and Drug Administration stand behind its safety. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports. Aspartame has been around nearly 50 years, and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has long maintained its safety. But recently, there have been a few studies pointing to a slight increase in cancer among people who consumed the highest amounts. The WHO's International Agency for Research on Cancer reviewed all the evidence and came to the conclusion that aspartame may possibly cause cancer, though they acknowledged the evidence was limited. Here's Francesco Branca, Director of Nutrition and Food Safety at the WHO. He spoke during a press conference in Geneva, Switzerland. Our results uh, do not indicate that occasional consumption should pose uh, a risk to most consumers. The problem is for high consumers. The agency had long ago established an allowable daily intake of up to 40 milligrams of aspartame per kilogram of body weight. That amounts to something close to 12 Diet Cokes a day for a 130-pound person. And clearly, most people don't consume that much. Dr. Branca says what they're suggesting is a bit of moderation, given the potential risks. He also points to a recent WHO analysis that found no clear long-term benefit of using non-sugar sweeteners to control weight. If you want to curb your 
energy intake. In the longer term, it doesn't help. So basically, the, the benefit is not there. The Food and Drug Administration has come out in defense of aspartame. An agency official says they disagree with the decision to classify it as a possible carcinogen, saying the artificial sweetener has been well studied and is safe. The agency said its own scientists reviewed the same studies the WHO reviewed and determined that these studies have significant shortcomings with inconsistent findings. And they say quite strongly they do not have safety concerns. They point out that some consumers may rely on products with aspartame to help reduce their sugar consumption. And Kevin Keane, interim president and CEO of the American Beverage Association, whose members include the Coca-Cola Company, PepsiCo, and many other beverage manufacturers, say consumers should not be confused by the WHO classification. Consumers should take all of this compendium of science, the overwhelming weight of the science, and be confident moving forward that aspartame is a safe choice. Whether diet sodas help people manage body weight and limit sugar may vary from person to person. And when it comes to a potential cancer risk, Dr. William Dayhut of the American Cancer Society says it's very clear that things like tobacco and obesity are linked to higher rates of cancer. But with aspartame, they're still unknowns. The bottom line is that there is not current evidence that definitively leads ingestion of aspartame to cancer. However, since there is a possible link, it is certainly reasonable to limit one's intake until more definitive studies are available. His group is calling for more research. In the meantime, the FDA says consumers should feel confident that aspartame consumed in moderation is safe. Alison Aubrey, NPR News. The federal deficit nearly tripled in the first nine months of the fiscal year. So how's this for a gusher red ink? Nearly $1.4 trillion. Everything is affecting this. Government spending is up, tax collections have slumped, and rising interest rates mean it's costing more for the government to borrow money to close the gap. Let's ask NPR Scott Horsley about that, Scott. I mean, even for the federal government, I mean, $1.4 trillion, it sounds like a lot of money. So what's happening? Well, the government was already in a deep hole, and it has continued to dig. Uh, spending over the last nine months was up about 10 percent compared to the same period a year earlier. Uh, Health care bills that Medicare and Medicaid pays are rising. Social Security spending is also up. Remember, Social Security recipients got a big cost of living adjustment at the beginning of this year to help make up for last year's high inflation. And at the same time, tax revenues are down about 11 percent. Uh, a lot of that's because of a drop in investment gains last year. The stock market was mostly down in 2022, so capital gains were down last year. That means capital gain taxes are down this year. So more money going out, less money coming in. That is a recipe for growing deficits. Okay, how much then is it costing the government to borrow that money? More than it used to. Uh, the government can still borrow money fairly cheaply, but not as cheaply as it once did. Uh, this deficit adds to an already large government debt of around $32 trillion. Interest on that debt in the last nine months was $652 billion. That's more than we spent on the military during that period. Uh, Maya McGinnis, who leads the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, says this is just not a sustainable path for uh, the federal government. With inflation and higher interest rates, I think it's harder for anybody to credibly look at this situation and say, this is healthy. And I do think that the discussion needs to start in earnest for people saying what they would do to address it. The discussion hasn't started. It's got to be. Are we hearing any discussion on that? 
Not a whole lot. Uh, we just went through this big showdown over the federal debt limit, uh, but the deal that came out of that really just nibbled around the edges of this problem. Uh, congressional Republicans insist they will not consider any increase in taxes. Uh, the Biden administration has ruled out cuts to major spending programs like Medicare and Social Security. Ultimately, it will probably take some combination of those those things to narrow this budget gap and get to something more manageable. Uh, Michael Peterson, who heads the foundation his father Peter Peterson started to promote fiscal responsibility, says he would like to see a bipartisan commission to look at all sides of the federal budget and make recommendations about how to bridge this gap, even though he acknowledges commissions are often just an excuse in Washington to kick the can down the road. I understand that the track record of commissions is not stellar, But that doesn't mean it's not a good idea to give it another try. And I think what's good about it is that it's a forced, serious, comprehensive dialogue on a bipartisan basis. And unfortunately, that's rare these days in Washington. Very rare. Uh, The Fish Bond Rating Agency warned last month that partisanship and polarization are some of the biggest fiscal challenges facing the U.S. Uh, The country and the government have lots of strengths, Fitch said, a strong economy, dynamic businesses, a dollar that's prized around the world. And yet, uh, the bond rating agency said our spotless rating could be jeopardized because of weak governance. Now, maybe the rising price tag on this deficit will spark some action. Uh, Just yesterday, a group of Democratic and Republican lawmakers announced they're forming a new group to tackle the nation's debt and deficit problem. Uh, They call themselves the Bipartisan Fiscal Forum, or BFF. NPR's Scott Horsley. Uh, Scott, thanks for checking in. You're welcome. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for being with us on WBUR this morning. In about 20 minutes on Morning Edition, we take a look at the future of the Black Lives Matter movement, which is 10 years old this week. It's 21 minutes past 8. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Earlier this year, severe floods hit California's Central Valley, devastating farms and homes. Some of those most affected were immigrant farm workers. We need to have a different approach to economic and climate resilience if we're going to protect the rights and the well-being of those that are furthest on the margins. That story on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. In our forecast, looks like scattered showers later today. Temperatures will be in the 80s. Rain tonight with lows around 70 degrees. Tomorrow, more scattered showers with highs in the mid-80s and thunderstorms likely on Sunday. Temperatures in the 80s. It is 72 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Sony Pictures Classics presenting The Miracle Club, a new film starring Maggie Smith, Kathy Bates, and Laura Linney, about four women who travel to Lourdes in search of a miracle, now playing only in theaters. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. For many people, the taste of summer is an icebox cake, whipped cream layered with cookies. And one of the most iconic versions features a very particular cookie, Nabisco famous chocolate wafers. But earlier this year, after nearly 100 years of production, Nabisco stopped making them. Dina Pritchett has the story of the icebox cake and what fans of those chocolate wafers are doing now. People who love icebox cakes really love icebox cakes. The cookies literally absorb the whipped cream and turn into like the softest, most delicious, almost like a cake pudding, like so unbelievably good. Jessie Sheehan wrote a whole cookbook about icebox cakes. She has recipes using lemon crisps and pairing ginger snaps with chai whipped cream. But her favorite is the classic using Nabisco famous chocolate wafers. You could eat that cookie by itself. It just has the most delicious, kind of slightly bitter, but still a teeny bit sweet chocolate flavor. Combine that bittersweet cookie with sweet cream, let it sit in the fridge for a few hours, and it's done. The popularity of these desserts dates back to the rise of refrigeration. Frigidaire, division of General Motors, presents America's number one refrigerator. Part of early refrigerator promotion included corporate cookbooks, which contained recipes for icebox cakes. They want people to value the refrigerator, so they have to kind of create a new cuisine that makes people think of the refrigerator as indispensable. Historian Megan Elias directs the Food Studies program at Boston University. Refrigerators don't get affordable till the 1920s, and then that's when you really begin to see the craze of the icebox cakes. Elias says early recipes used sponge cake or ladyfingers, things people had to bake at home. But when packaged cakes and cookies came along, the icebox cake got even easier to make. Eventually, the National Biscuit Company, a.k.a. Nabisco, printed a recipe right on the package of their famous chocolate wafers, which became a classic. It's not a bottom-up recipe. It's very much like green bean casserole, where it's, it comes from the corporation. And yet, it becomes so much part of people's lives. It's something they remember from childhood. So what do you do when one of the main ingredients of that childhood memory disappears from the shelves? There are other chocolate cookies, Oreos, chocolate shortbreads. But devotees of the classic version say those don't have quite the same flavor or texture. So to make this no-bake summertime cake, some are resorting to turning on their ovens. Baker and cookbook author Zoe Francois came up with a recipe that she says is pretty darn close to the original. I landed on using cake flour because these cookies really have a delicate snap to them. And then a cocoa powder that adds the right flavor and color for that zebra-striped effect in the finished cake. I use a Dutch process, which is a darker cocoa. Francois also adds baking soda because the alkalinity makes the dough even darker. Food science. Bake the cookies up, spread on the whipped cream, and it's an icebox cake. These current versions, with homemade cookies or alternate brands, may taste slightly different. But they're just the latest chapter in the same story. Historian Megan Elias. So... It's a good story because it's about industrialization and food, but also it's just about delight, right? And about a dessert that is perfect on a hot summer day, no matter what the cookie. For NPR News, I'm Dina Pritchep. If you want to make your own chocolate wafers, Zoe Francois' recipe is on our website, npr.org. It's Friday, which is when we hear StoryCorps. 
Johnny Itleon grew up in California's grape fields in the 1960s. His father, Larry Itleon, was one of many Filipino migrant farm workers who worked for less than minimum wage. Now, in 1965, Larry helped lead what was called the Delano Grape Strike. Johnny Itleon came to StoryCorps to share stories about his dad with his own son. One of his nicknames was Seven Fingers because when he was up working in Alaska, he lost three of his fingers. He was small in stature, but he was very, very strong man. He always wore pocketed shirts, thick Ray-Ban glasses, and he would always have his cigar, his Cubanos. I remember I would have to get up at three o'clock in the morning and we would jump in the back of his truck, load it up full of boxes, and you stack them maybe 10, 12 feet high. I could carry about eight of them stacked up. There were so many good men living in box carts, sheds, whatever they can make out of the elements. And I remember maybe one guy had one suit and whoever would get a date would wear that suit. So they would share the suit. 20, 30 guys, you know, that's, that's the brotherhood. And when they would pass, they didn't have family in the United States. Hmm. They had no one to say goodbye to them. And it was just us, me, my father, my brother. The only time they ever received flowers was at their funeral. Men who worked the fields, they fed the United States. What memories do you have of the picket lines? At five years old, I remember running around getting the sticks. You know, I would bring sticks to the ones who were nailing the picket signs. I think that was probably like my earliest memory. You know, my father stood up for the people who need help. He sacrificed a lot of his family time to make a better world for us. We have big shoes to walk in, man. Oh, yeah. I don't feel like I'm even close. But your demeanor reminds me of him because he was very calm. He always listened. When it was time for him to speak, what he said was important. And already you followed those footsteps. Turn it. Johnny and Alex Itleon remembering Johnny's father, Larry. Their conversation is at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later. Because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. It's NPR News. And today's top stories are just ahead. In about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we'll talk about how Massachusetts lawmakers are considering making the state the first to ban the sale of cell phone location data. It's 8.30. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Biden administration says it plans to erase $39 billion in federal student loans in a move the Education Department says is unrelated to a recent ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court. The government cites errors made through the mismanagement of income-driven repayment plans. It says many borrowers who made student loan payments for 20 years or more should have qualified to have their debts eliminated. 
Nearly 100 million people in the U.S. are now under heated warnings or advisories. They extend from Washington State to Alabama, along with South Florida. The extreme heat covers nearly all of California, Nevada, Arizona, and Texas. The National Weather Service says Phoenix has had afternoon highs of about 110 for two straight weeks. Alicia Dempster is a tourist from Scotland visiting Death Valley National Park in California. It's very hot. I mean, especially when there's a breeze, you would think that maybe that would give you some slight relief from the heat, but it just really does feel like an, an air blow dryer is just going back in your face. Palm Springs, California is forecast to hit 116 today. For the first time in more than a half century, Hollywood actors and writers are on strike at the same time. Actors with SAG-AFTRA walked off the job this morning after the union and the major film and TV studios failed to reach agreement on a contract. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. A flood watch is in effect for most of central and western Massachusetts through at least tonight. More rain is expected through the weekend. That means rivers and streams already inundated with water could flood again. Kyle Peterson is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. So it could be fairly variable across the region as we're expecting um, thunderstorms, which will drop a lot of rain in one spot and not as much in others. But region-wide, we're expecting anywhere from an inch and a half to two inches with locally higher amounts. Western Massachusetts saw the most severe flooding earlier this week. The Connecticut River only receded from its flood stage yesterday. About 35,000 911 emergency calls went unanswered by Boston police dispatchers last year. That's according to union representatives for the dispatchers. They tell the Boston Herald understaffing and overworked operators at the centers are to blame. The Boston Police Department has not commented. Researchers at Mass General Brigham and McLean Hospital say they found promising new results in the fight against Parkinson's disease. The current standard for treatment for Parkinson's is not effective because it's quickly killed off by the patient's immune system. But a new study suggests that treatment could work better if it was paired with the patient's own white blood cells. Study author Kwon Soo Kim says while testing the new treatment on mice, the animals had a better recovery time. We were very excited. We believe that the new technology can be applied to a clinical trial for the cell therapy of Parkinson's disease. That is our next goal. Researchers say if effective, the treatment could be widely applied to therapies for other degenerative disorders such as Alzheimer's, ALS, or Huntington's. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BioNova Scientific, GMP manufacturing services for biologics. BioNovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. Red Sox begin the second half of their season, playing the Cubs in Chicago tonight. Boston is nine games out of first place in the American League East and two games out of a wild card spot. The Sox are also looking forward to next year. They've released their 2024 schedule. They'll begin the season March 28th in Seattle. The first home game will be April 9th against Baltimore. In our forecast, partly sunny skies throughout the day today, but scattered showers as well. Temperatures in the 80s. More rain expected tonight with lows near 70 degrees. Tomorrow, scattered showers again. Temperatures in the mid-80s and showers and storms likely on Sunday with highs in the 80s. 72 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station 
and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com From Zoom, Zoom One is designed for AI-powered collaboration across phone, video, messaging, whiteboards, and work apps, keeping global teams connected. One platform to connect, Zoom One. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Black Lives Matter is marking its 10th anniversary this week. The movement began in the wake of the acquittal of the shooter who killed Trayvon Martin, an unarmed black teenager. The police killings of Michael Brown and George Floyd, among others, put BLM at the center of the push for criminal justice reform. Joining us now is Black Lives Matter co-founder Aya Tometi. Uh, Aya, if you can take us back uh, 10 years uh, when the movement first began, what was its mission? What did it set out to do? Its mission was really to ensure that the voices and concerns of Black people were being heard. We were tired of the countless numbers of people that were being killed, if it was vigilantes, if it was law enforcement, if it was um, security guards. We were just sick and tired of hearing these stories in our communities. We were sad, we were devastated, and we knew that we had to take the tradition of community organizing that leaders like Martin Luther King and uh, Malcolm X and many others have taught us and we needed to remind the larger public that we actually have something that we can do when we're faced with these types of challenges, that we can organize, that we can harness the voices, the concerns, the work of our community, and we could step out and courage and do something to change it. How heard has it been? You know what? It's been a very difficult journey, I won't lie. You know, it's been an uphill battle to ensure that our voices were heard. We took to social media back in 2013 because we weren't being heard by traditional media, to be quite frank. Um, We weren't hearing our stories. We weren't seeing the media cover it. And we knew that we had to use the tools of our time to ensure that our concerns were being, you know, heard. And we were sharing those stories amongst ourselves. And you know, we saw the rise in our voices. We saw that people were concerned. And then we saw that, you know, media began to pay attention to our stories. And I think that was very important because we saw a pivot, if you will, um, where our voices were finally being amplified and taken more seriously. And over the years, we've seen many more people join us. Millions and millions of people have joined around the world to declare that Black lives do matter and that we want a different kind of world. We want a world where we have multiracial democracies that work for all of us. And it's very heartening to see that this movement is actually, in fact, very multiracial. It's very multifaceted. And it's not just about criminal justice or criminal justice reform, but it's about the quality of life that Black people should have in every sphere of life. So if it's the healthcare industry, if it's our workplace, if it's the education, everywhere, we're seeing that people are understanding that this is about Black lives, period, no matter what, because racism is embedded in every facet of our society. And so we require that we have transformation and changes in every facet of our society. In 2021, you said that the Biden administration has a lot of work to do and has a long way to go on issues important to Black Lives Matter. How does the Biden administration look to you today? 
You know what? The Biden administration still has a long way to go, but the truth is that we are seeing that even just, you know, a little over a week ago, we saw the Supreme Court overturned affirmative action. We saw uh, this pushback um, against the gay community, the queer community, LGBTQ folks. We've seen so many different setbacks. We've seen laws and proposals to criminalize activism in the wake of the 2020 uprisings against the murder of, of George Floyd and so on. And so we know that there's a lot of work to do across all aspects of our government. Ayatomedi is a human rights advocate, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter. Thank you very much. Thank you. Many Republican presidential candidates, not Donald Trump, but a bunch of the others, are in Iowa today, getting in front of a key voting block for them, evangelical Christians who have a lot of sway within the party. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters is gearing up for yet another presidential election that will be big in Iowa. Hey there, Clay. Good morning, Steve. So what makes this event called the Family Leadership Summit important? Evangelical Christians are important in this Republican caucus. They make up like two-thirds of the Republican electorate in Iowa. Hmm. Bob Vanderplatz is the head of the group putting this on. It's called The Family Leader, and he's a bit of a kingmaker of sorts. He always becomes relevant ahead of the Iowa caucus. He endorsed Mike Huckabee in 2008, Rick Santorum in 2012, and Ted Cruz in 2016. And Steve, what do all three of these men have in common? They won the Iowa caucus those years. Of course, none of them went on to be the nominee, And Vanderplatz is very public in saying it's time to move on from Donald Trump, and this year is different. Iowa is so crucial this year that I believe if the former president gets beat here, it's game on to the nomination. I believe he wins here, he runs the table. So that's why you see South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, former Vice President Mike Pence, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and so many more wanting to be on stage here today. Well, this is really interesting. You have Vanderplatz then trying to find an alternative to Donald Trump within the party. So what issues are motivating the kind of evangelical voters who will pay attention to an event like this? Well, the one that is really top of mind this week would be restricting abortion. On Tuesday, the Republican-led legislature here passed a six-week abortion ban, and that's before most know that they're pregnant. Iowa's Republican Governor Kim Reynolds ordered the one-day special session after Iowa's Supreme Court declined to reinstate a practically identical law that she signed about five years ago. She called this new bill a vindication of her earlier efforts, and she's actually going to sign that bill today at the Family Leadership Summit. So there's a, a photo op for these candidates. And there was another one of these large gatherings with politicians giving speeches put on by a different evangelical group in the state a few months back. Most of the people I talked to there were motivated by so-called cultural issues. This is Rowdy Craby. He's a firefighter from a small town near Ames. Parental rights, education, uh, anything that has to do with protecting children. If we're going to help our children, support our children and get them away from these ideologies that are just absolutely toxic. And he seemed to be really repeating conservative talking points or alluding to them around LGBT issues. In fact, his wife, Lisa, had just quit her job as a speech pathologist to homeschool their children. So Craby wasn't for Trump at all eight years ago at the outset of the caucuses. Then he kind of warmed to him and became a big Trump fan. But he said he's, you know, willing to listen to these candidates as they come to Iowa and are showing up. Well, let's think about the dynamics here. You've got Vanderplatz, the organizer of this event, looking for an alternative explicitly to Donald Trump. But people attending events like this who are big Trump fans, can Trump command a lot of the evangelical vote without even showing up? I mean, I guess Trump would argue he can. Uh, He's still coming here. He was just here last week holding a rally in Council Bluffs, and he'll do another one of these televised town halls on Fox News next week from Des Moines. 
he also made news this week. He attacked Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds for not endorsing him. She's remained neutral so far in the race. She appears with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis quite a bit, and I think that's kind of getting under his skin. So he's definitely not playing the traditional Iowa games, but, I mean, he didn't play them eight years ago, and now he has a lot more GOP support in the state. Clay Masters, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks, Steve. This is NPR News. Coming up in about 10 minutes on Morning Edition, we go to the Marketplace Morning Report, and we'll hear a story about scams involving the use of artificial intelligence to clone people's voices so they can be used on fraudulent phone calls. In our weather forecast, uh, it looks like the storms that rolled through early this morning are having an effect at Logan Airport. The website FlightAware says more than 90 flights in and out of Logan are delayed. More than 30 are canceled. Most involve Cape Air. Right now, it's partly sunny, but scattered showers throughout the day in greater Boston today. It'll be in the 80s. Rain tonight with lows near 70 degrees. Partly sunny tomorrow with scattered showers once again. Temperatures in the mid 80s. 80s and looks like showers and storms on Sunday with temperatures in the 80s. It is 72 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. In business news, Bostonians are still feeling the squeeze of inflation, even though rates have eased to the lowest level in two years. That's according to a recent survey on wealth by Charles Schwab. WBUR's Zeninjor Enwameka reports that 91 percent of the Bostonians polled say inflation has affected their finances. When it comes to essentials like food, utilities, and transportation, Bostonians say they've increased their spending by 35 to 65 percent. They've also decreased their spending on non-essential items and travel. Rich Rivera is a vice president and branch manager for Charles Schwab in Boston. A lot of people are they're, they're not really able to save as much as they have before. And so I think that just by default creates the sense of um, I think at some level of concern in terms of their ability to achieve like a broader level of financial success. Nearly two-thirds of the Boston residents surveyed say they've reduced the amount of money they set aside for savings. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zeninjor and Wameka. A donut chain specializing in Japanese donuts is expanding into central Massachusetts. California-based Mochi Nut will soon open on Park Ave in Worcester. It already has several Massachusetts locations, including Boston, Quincy, and Lowell. It's 845. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is NPR.
You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. That powerful computer that most of us carry everywhere also tracks our movements, which is raising some thorny privacy questions. While some states have taken steps to protect cell phone location information, Massachusetts could become the first state to go even further, banning the sale of location data from cell phones. A bill making its way through the state house is designed to protect healthcare privacy, but it could have broader effects. Boston University law professor Andrew Sellers, who's also the director of the BUMIT Technology Law Clinic, joins us to talk about this. Thanks for being with us on Morning Edition. Thank you for having me. So let's first talk broadly about selling cell phone location data. Right now, data brokers pretty much can buy and sell that data without a lot of restrictions. Is that right? That's correct. Right now, data can be gathered from a phone from a wide variety of different ways. There have been some steps done uh, in more recent versions of these operating systems to limit or control or at least alert users as to when an app might be gathering your location information and uh, increasingly the ability to abstract the granularity of the location information that's involved. But generally speaking, there's very little in terms of law that prevents companies from doing this, as long as they at least include somewhere in their privacy policies that this is something that they're doing. And so they're telling you, sort of, if you if you read that, that long, fine print that nobody reads. There are a lot of critiques to that approach, which is why we're seeing more attention towards other models, including potentially prohibitions like the one Massachusetts is contemplating. Mm-hmm. Because these companies can take the location data and and sell it to, say, law enforcement, Homeland Security. We've seen instances where this has happened. And and basically, law enforcement has a a warrantless way of accessing your location data. That's right. uh, The Electronic Privacy Information Center uh, has done some studies on this recently and shown that there's been a growing market of consumer location data that's handled by data brokers being bought by law enforcement at all different levels, federal, state, and local law enforcement. Uh, And in so doing, they are circumventing some of the constitutional protections that have been put in place over the past decade or so when it comes to cell site location information, which is the the way in which your uh, cell phone provider, your Verizon or T-Mobile, might know where you are. If law enforcement were to go to Verizon to get this location information, it would require a warrant to do so. However, if they go to a data broker, they can just purchase it as anyone would be able to purchase it and therefore circumvent that warrant requirement. Mm. And so this legislation in Massachusetts, this was proposed after the Supreme Court's abortion decision, right? And abortion rights and privacy advocates both then expressed concern, right, about what this might mean, folks having access to your uh, cell phone location data. So how would this bill protect against that? So the way the bill works is it defines a very limited set of permissible purposes by which a company can use a customer's location data, basically just to provide the actual product or service that the user wants them to provide or to fulfill a a commercial transaction. So for example, if you're ordering food on a food app and it's using your location to know where to deliver the food, that would be a permissible use. Mm -hmm. But aside from that, uh, you are essentially prohibited from doing anything else with the data. Are there other things that you think should be considered in this legislation? All of these are interesting strategies and questions, but of course it is all confined specifically to the area of location and specifically location coming off of phones and other mobile devices. That leaves a lot of other types of sensitive information that might be out there that you might be getting through websites just on the internet using your laptop or desktop. 
that might be other forms of uh, sensitive health or financial information that are inferred through means other than location. All of those are left untouched by this bill. This bill is narrowly focused on what is admittedly a, a very highly sensitive and highly identifiable type of data, but not the only highly sensitive or highly identifiable type of data. So we're still we're, we're still figuring this out. We are still figuring this out. Okay. Boston University law professor Andrew Sellers, who's also director of the BU-MIT Technology Law Clinic. Thanks for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Coming up at the top of the hour, it's the BBC News Hour. On the show today, they'll have the latest on the investigation into allegations of ethnic violence and war crimes in the Darfur region of Sudan. It's 8.51. The Sumner Tunnel is closed through the end of August. So if you're trying to get from East Boston or Logan Airport to downtown, state officials say please don't drive. The fastest, cheapest, and most reliable way in and out of Boston during this time period is going to, without a doubt, be public transportation. We are providing free and discounted Blue Line, commuter rail, bus, and ferry service. For tips on how to get around the summer Sumner shutdown, visit WBUR.org and stay tuned to WBUR for updates. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following at WBUR this Friday morning. Actors are joining writers on the picket lines after their sag after union unanimously voted to go on strike. The southwestern United States bracing for record-breaking heat with temperatures nearing 120 degrees in some states. And a man is doing court in Boston this morning to face charges in yesterday's shooting death of a 12-year-old boy in Mattapan. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90. WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. When a loved one calls in trouble, but it's really an artificial intelligence clone. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Indeed, a streamlined hiring solution. Indeed helps businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Learn more at Indeed.com hire. And by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. I'm David Brancaccio. First, the Environmental Protection Agency announced today how it's going to give out $27 billion worth of grants to help low-income communities go more green in an effort to curb climate change. It's a grants competition funded by the Biden administration's Inflation Reduction Act. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has more. The EPA is setting up a green bank to dole out the money. It's not an actual bank, more of an investment fund. It works with the private sector, backing loans and making grants to nonprofits that work with banks to invest in projects that cut energy costs for consumers and lower emissions. Things like charging stations for electric vehicles, community cooling centers, and heat pumps for homes. The Biden administration says at least 40 percent of the money will be targeted to low-income communities, including including rural areas and tribal communities, which often find it difficult to access this type of funding. Some states have had green banks for years. They make loans that are paid back with interest, investing in things like community solar arrays. New York, Minnesota, and even cities like Washington, D.C. have green banks. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. 
With quarterly results from big financial companies starting to come in this morning, we see that profits at the biggest U.S. bank, J.P. Morgan Chase, up 67% in the spring. As it moved interest rates higher, it earned more from borrowers. The stock is up about 3% pre-market. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Grammarly. Grammarly Business empowers companies to drive faster results with secure enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence that works where teams do. It helps businesses break down information silos, collaborate efficiently, and quickly adapt to stay competitive. Grammarly.com slash business. And by BuySide from the Wall Street Journal, an independent commerce site designed to help consumers make smart decisions with their time and money. WSJ.com slash BuySide. New techniques in artificial intelligence can copy likenesses, one of the issues in the actor's strike that began last night. It can also be used to manipulate a person's voice into saying anything. What you're about to hear is not me, but a software-generated clone of me. Hit it. From American Public Media, this is the Marketplace Morning Report. I'm David Brancaccio. Pretty close, although story of my life, it can't quite do my last name. Now, don't tell my boss this technology is available, and certainly don't tell any more scammers who can use AI-generated voices to trick people into parting with their money. I'm joined now by Wasim Khalid, CEO and co-founder of Blackbird AI, a firm that uses good artificial intelligence to stop the bad. Mr. Khalid, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I have reported on efforts to scam people. Often the phone rings, it's a voice on the phone purporting to be a nephew stuck in jail somewhere. You got to send money now. Artificial intelligence can actually make that kind of fraud worse? I think infinitely worse. We've seen, what, 2.6 billion in impersonation scams uh, reported by the FTC in 2022 without generative AI. One example of what generative AI could do to empower these threat actors, they could go on social media, get a couple of seconds of someone's voice or really any other audio source and be able to generate entire scripts of whatever they want that person to say. And so, yeah, we've seen recently children calling the parents asking for a wire transfer for a ransom, things of that nature. And this has become infinitely easier to do at very low cost, very quickly, with no technical experience needed. So people listening should be aware, and also we've done reporting that when one of these situations happens, you get anxious. The person who picks up the phone gets worried, and when you're anxious, you may not think clearly. Other than being alert for the possibility of fraud, is there anything anyone can do? Well, what I tell anyone today is to have some sort of a security phrase with uh, family members, at least, that only you would know. And this is a phrase that if you have any doubt, what is the secret phrase? And if they can't tell you, then you better hang up. The technology, it's very realistic. And you talked uh, a little bit about um, the anxiety and nervousness that someone might have when something like this is occurring. And it works two ways. One, you make emotional decisions because you are anxious that your loved one is actually in danger. But on the Gen AI side, when you take someone's voice, even if it's not 100% perfect, right? If you tell the prompt to make it more anxious and, and scared, then that heightened AI-driven voice, it's harder to really detect because most people are used to listening to people just conversational. All right. So this new technology is making this worse. <laughs> Can our engineers and smart people come up with systems now to maybe help us authenticate some of this? Yeah. I know it sounds like a pretty doomy scenario, doomy outlook. And 
like any critical innovation or big innovation, there's going to be good users and bad users. I mean, you take something like nuclear fission, you've got either nuclear energy, you've got nuclear missiles. There are many people working right now to make sure that we don't end up in a post-truth world, that there are ways for the individual governments and everyone else to, to understand better when the things that they're seeing, hearing, consuming are actually authentic or, or, or that they're being manipulated in some way. And so there are a lot of people working on this problem, but sometimes these things take time and defense always uh, trails offense, unfortunately. Wasim Khalid is CEO and co-founder of Blackbird AI. Thank you very much for this. Thank you for having me. Good idea on setting up a safe phrase with loved ones that AI won't know. We're also looking at a new front in regulating AI with news the Federal Trade Commission is investigating whether OpenAI, maker of ChatGPT, has violated consumer protection laws by harming people when it spreads false or defamatory information about them. That coverage is in the Marketplace Morning Report podcast feed if you miss it on the air. And AI clone, David, you going to say it? You know you want to. But first, let's do the numbers. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is not available, Mr. AI, because the stock market's not open yet. This human knows to tell you that the Dow futures are up five-tenths of a percent. S&P futures are up two-tenths percent. NASDAQ futures pretty flat. Our executive producer is Kelly Silvera. Our digital producer is Jordan Mangi. Our engineers are Nick Esposito, Jessen Dooler, and Brian Allison. I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is WBUR. We will see scattered showers later today. Highs in the 80s. Tonight, rain with lows around 70 degrees. It's 72 in Boston at 9 o'clock. Ten-step skincare routines, products made from snail mucus, just some of the things popularized worldwide by the South Korean beauty industry. And then I use this other essence. How many steps do I have? Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The K-beauty industry, consumerism and the pursuit of flawlessness. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.